0: Well, good morning, Gospel Hope, and welcome back as we open up our third message in our series, It's Complicated. As you know, today we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapters 18 through 20, and in those three chapters, it tells us the story of the unique relationship between David, Jonathan, and Saul. And what you're going to find as we unpack this story, if there was ever a group of relationships that were complicated, it was this one. You kind of already know, building off of last week's message, that David has recently come out of absolute obscurity in his household, uh, not even mentioned or numbered amongst his brothers until Samuel uh, asked uh, Jesse if he had any more sons. And then so David is finally invited as a ruddy boy out of the fields, and he's ultimately the one that God has chosen to be king. Now, after he is anointed to be king, he goes out and obviously slays Goliath the giant. And so now he's known as a great man of war. He's curried favor in the eyes of Saul. He's been invited to live in Saul's household. And when we pick up the story at 1 Samuel chapter 18, I want to read these words as they really describe this emerging brand new relationship, not just between Saul and David, but now between Saul's son, Jonathan and David. So if you have your Bibles or if you're following on the screen, listen to this. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, it starts by saying, "'As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, "'the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. "'Jonathan loved him as his own soul, "'and Saul took him that day "'and would not let him return to his father's house. "'And Jonathan made a covenant with David "'because he loved him as he loved his own soul. "'And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe "'that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful and whenever, uh, wherever Saul sent him. And so it was said that, so so then Saul set him over the men of war and all that he did, it was good in the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Well, shortly after that, the relationship takes a very interesting turn. And if you know anything about this unique tension that existed between David and Saul, Eventually, Saul develops a great degree of jealousy against David because people are heralding him in many ways as being a better warrior than Saul himself. But stuck right there in the middle is Jonathan, who is Saul's son, who loves David deeply and finds himself throughout chapters 18, 19, and 20 trying to help David avert danger that's brought on by his dad. So it is, Jonathan finds himself... Sometimes needing to choose or maybe the tension to choose between loyalty to the kingdom, loyalty to his dad, loyalty to David. And so you have David, who was recently just a shepherd boy, now being promoted by God into this position of king. He's now being put on a public stage to to defeat Goliath. And now he's going to find himself on a regular basis running for his life as Saul tries to kill him. Well, at the same time, Saul also is struggling in his relationship with the Lord, finding himself regularly being tormented by a spirit and also find himself being tormented by his own jealousy and greed and desire to keep David from becoming or to usurp him or to take over his role as king. I know that sounds complicated, and that's why the series is called that. It's complicated. But before we delve too deeply in those relationships, I want you to understand three things that'll really help you to fully appreciate today's message. There are some times in this story where you and I are going to look and feel like David. There are other times where you and I are gonna look and feel like Saul. And there are other times where you and I are going to look and feel like Jonathan. But regardless of sometimes feeling like David, sometimes feeling like Saul, and sometimes feeling like Jonathan, What I want us to do is to elevate our view and to know that every time that we can focus in on the sovereignty of God and how he is making himself available and sufficient in this story. In order to fully appreciate this story of Jonathan, David, and Saul, I want to tell you a little bit of a story of my own. My very first job at the age of 15, after having Walked around the neighborhood from the age of 12 and on uh, with a a lawnmower and a gas can. I finally got the call, the call from my brother-in-law to come to the big leagues. A real job, if you will, at a brick-and-mortar institution. He was going to give me a job working as a part-time associate at an auto parts company. And so here I come on my first day and I'm uh, given an opportunity to not only be a part-time automotive counter salesman, but to also sell tires. Selling tires was uh, something that I really loved. Didn't have a whole lot of experience at it and many of the people who came up to buy tires from me probably knew that as well because I was this young kid. But I figured since I didn't have a lot of experience, I'd have to develop expertise. And so I would go in and I would do all these studies on all these different types of tires. And so what I came to learn is that every tire that we had in inventory was designed for a very specific purpose. And those purposes, without getting too deep into them, usually fall somewhere in the area of having great traction, great uh, water wicking capabilities, or managing temperature, or control and keeping down noise. Now, when we think about these different types of tires, most people would come in and rather than buying the original tires that were uh, found on their vehicle, they would want to have like an all-purpose an all-weather or an all-season tire. The challenge with an all-season tire or an all-weather tire was this, while it had characteristics and attributes of a good winter tire and also a good temper- all-temperature tire and also a good traction tire, no tire could perform as well as a winter tire when it comes to driving on snow. No tire could perform as well as a, as a, as a, a, a speed tire when it came to maintaining great traction but people didn't want to limit themselves into one of those uh, uh, types of tires or the other, so they would say, well, give me an all-season tire, and they were generally cheaper. You see, the problem with all-season tires was that, no, they aren't built exclusively for speed, they aren't built exclusively for traction, they aren't built exclusively for comfort, they're typically just built to try to bring a little bit of all those characteristics in one. And so, what we find is that people were willing to compromise for a lower price just to get a little bit of all of them, even if it's not exactly what they need. I tell you this story because I want us to realize that we have an all-sufficient God and that no matter what season we're in, whether it's a rainy season, a snowy season, a hot season, regardless of what difficulties we're going through, regardless of what kind of roads we need to navigate, God is indeed a God for all seasons that we don't have to feel like because uh, the Lord uh, uh, is, is, we don't have to ever feel like we're we're compromised when we choose to follow God and place our faith in him. We have an all season savior. So regardless of how we feel, whether I'm feeling like David, person who is a victim that's under attack, or whether I'm feeling like a Saul, a person who is jealous and there's some real sinful work going on in my heart. Or whether I'm a person that's like Jonathan, caught in the middle between a great friend with whom I've covenanted and also my father. Whether I'm feeling stuck in the middle. No matter how I feel in a certain season of my life, and in we are, because we will experience all of those seasons. No matter how I feel about that season, I need to know that God is sufficient in every season god is sufficient in every season regardless of how i feel in any given season and that's kind of the big story that i want to talk about today as we walk through this story through the lens of david through the lens of saul and also through the lens of jonathan so when we think about what's going on in david's heart reflect again on just the past two messages david has made a great come up i mean his his heart is humbled He's glad to be used of the Lord. <clears throat> he has great confidence in what the Lord is doing in his life. And he sees himself being put on a stage that he's never been put on before. And then suddenly things change. He's just being David, but his life is marked by back-to-back challenges, right? The first challenge is he's left out in the field by himself. The second challenge is that he's once he gets called up, he also goes out into battle to slay the giant. Now, the third challenge is going to be depicted here in chapters 18 through 20. Listen to these words in chapter 18 of Samuel, 1 Samuel, beginning with verses 6 and following. It says, As they came home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul and with tambourines, and with joy, and singing, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another, and they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his 10 thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, because he said, they have ascribed to David 10 thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. And what more could he have but the kingdom? And so Saul eyed David from that day on. Literally what's happening in the scripture is that from that day forward, Saul sought a way to kill David. So here it is, a young man who just a short while ago was minding his business, tending to the sheep, slaying the bear and the lion. Now finds himself working in the kingdom after having slain a giant. But now the very man that he is seeking to serve actually wants to slay him. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you felt like you were just trying to do life, living for God the best you can, but everywhere you look, there's challenges all around? Seasons change on a regular basis, but God does not. The beautiful thing about having an all-season Savior, or having a God who does not change regardless of the season, is that God is sufficient for every season. It's not as if God is only good at saving people from certain kinds of things and in certain kinds of circumstances, but he's not good at others. He is indeed an all-sufficient God who is more than capable. When we find ourselves wearing David's shoes, I would ask us to do one thing, to remember. When we find ourselves in David's shoes, where it seems like we've got challenges on every side, it seems like in one season of my life it's raining, in another it's scorching heat, in another it's sleet or snow, regardless of the circumstances, no matter what's going on in your relationships, no matter what's going on between you and your spouse, or you and your boss, or you and your relatives, or you and your neighbor, no matter what may be happening in your life, you and the society, you and the and the and and your peers on the job, no matter what may be happening in some of your deepest relationships or your most distant relationships, you. to know that God is both equally concerned and he is actively involved. And so remember this, remember just like David, what God had done in the past, what God did in the pasture of David's life was he gave him the courage, the strength, the skill, and the ability to do what? To slay the bear and the lion. It was God who did that in the past. And we should remember also what God has done in our past personally. When no one else was watching, when it was just us and God and the little bitty assignment that we had before him, remember and never forget how God has been faithful to us in the works that we have done in small spaces of life. Remember that, that's our job, to remember. We don't have to be a people who tries to put our past behind us. God wants us to have a fresh recollection of our past so that we can see exactly how he's working on our behalf. But not only that, think about how God had worked through David, not only in the pasture, but also in public. Once again, it was a great challenge, but it was the Lord who gave David the ability to slay Goliath. We need to remember both the small wins and the big wins as a part of what God is doing in our lives. But guess what else David also needs to remember as he finds himself in this very different and new relationship landscape that God has prepared him for. He needs to remember that when nobody even knew David's name, that it was God who called him up out of the fields and had him to be numbered amongst his brothers. And then even though he was the last born and not the firstborn, God technically made him the firstborn by anointing him to become the king of Israel. He needs to remember that because while God has done it and he's done something in the past that hasn't even been realized yet in the, in the future, but it will be realized in the future. This is not just David's life in God. It's also a demonstration or a display of our life in God. I should remember what the Lord did through the bear and the lion in my pasture of life, right? Because at that time, the Lord revealed to David that I am your strength. We need to remember what God did in slaying the giant. Because the Lord said, the Lord is for me. And the Bible tells us that if the Lord is for me, then who can be against me, regardless of how big or they are or how daunting that task may be. But then the, the anointing oil that Samuel poured on David's head, and it said that the Spirit came upon him at that point, and the Spirit stayed with him. And that's a constant theme throughout David's life that contributes to his success throughout all of his military campaigns, and especially those that are featured in 1 Samuel chapter 18, 19, and 20. And so we see that the Lord is his strength, the Lord is with him, but also the Lord is for him. These things God also wants to reinforce in our lives. And often the things that God has done to remind us of that are somewhere in our past if we will look carefully. We live in a world right now that doesn't want us to focus on the past. It always wants us to pioneer and to push forward. But God does very powerful, very potent things in our past that we should bring into the future that help us live with the kind of courage that we need in complicated relationship landscapes. You see, what David is getting ready to face in light of Saul's hatred for him He needs to know that no matter how many spears Saul throws at him, that God has appointed him to be king. He needs to know that no matter how many spears or how much hatred that Saul has for him, that God has already slain a giant. He needs to know that no matter how many spears Saul may throw at him, that God's got his back, that he is with him, that he is for him, and that he is his strength. But all of those recollections are a part of his past. We, as people of God, need to specialize in remembering. Maybe as a spiritual discipline, you need to start journaling. Whatever you have to do, we need to be a people who start remembering. Remembering is a crucial part of even Israel's health and wellness as a nation throughout the Bible. Oftentimes, God would associate their current sins with a failure to remember what God had done for them in the past. Don't let that become our signature. We need to be people who can remember. Sometimes you'll feel like David, where you're getting slapped on every side and no matter what you're doing, you're always faced day after day with brand new challenges. But in that moment, you need to always remember how God overcame the last challenge. Remember, this is this. We should be doing life under the influence of a redeemed past, an empowered present, and a secure future. I'll say that again. This is what we should remember. We should be doing life as believers under the influence of a redeemed past, an empowered present, and a secure future. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7 puts it this way, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, past. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing present of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, present so that here it comes future promise. Right. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Every New Testament text that talks about our salvation, talks about our redeemed past our empowered present and our secure future you should recognize that vernacular because that really is the outline of our great salvation right we have been redeemed from the past the uh, uh, sins past right forgiven from that of that penalty we have been empowered to overcome sin for the sin in the present and we have also been promised that we'll be removed from the temptations of sin in the future But it isn't just relative to our sin that these three tenses of our salvation applies. It's even as we're navigating relationships, the Lord wants us to be actively reminded of how he has restored and recovered and rebuilt and dealt with relationships in the past and how he gives us empowerment to endure difficult relationships in the the current times as well as an indication that he will stick with us in the future and that nothing can separate us from this. So we need to be people who remember. But remembering isn't the only saga that we see in David's story. When we look at verses 11 and 12, I want to point out some other aspects of of this unique relationship landscape between Jonathan, Saul, and David. Looking at verses 11 through 12, the Bible tells us that Saul was afraid. Excuse me, that's verse 10. I'm going to start with verse 10. Um, The next day, a harmful spirit... Uh, from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. and he said day by day and he did this day by day and Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought I will pin David to the wall but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and he had departed from Saul. And so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander over the thousands. Now, Saul then conducted, con- uh, excuse me, conducted a scheme that he would send David out to battle and hopefully in the battle against the Philistines that he would be killed or overcome. And that way he wouldn't have to deal with David's presence. But that didn't happen. Because why? Because the Lord was with him. Have you ever found yourself in the seat of Saul? Look at what's happening in Saul's heart. So is a man who is looking at who looking at someone else right before his very eyes that God is using and he has been overwhelmed with jealousy. It happens to the best of us. Maybe we don't think of it as jealousy. Maybe we don't think of it as covetousness. Maybe we don't think of it as, as anger. Well, we don't think of it, Maybe maybe we don't want to admit that it hurts us, but there are times in our lives where we look out from behind our own eyes and we see God's work, fruitful work in the lives of others. And because our lives do not have that same fruit, we sometimes develop an air of jealousy and anger. And we don't even know where it's arising from. But I would say this, if you are the kind of person who at this season in your life, everything angers you, maybe you're angry with God. If you're always annoyed, if you're always short-tempered, if you always are disappointed, if you constantly find yourself never satisfied with any and everything that's going on around you, regardless of how good it is, if it just constantly annoys you, you could indeed be angry with God because you're disappointed with how this current season in your life is going. And that's a very dangerous place, and that's exactly where Saul is. And where David was, he needed to remember, but where Saul is, he needs to repent. When we find ourselves in Saul's shoes, well, we are moved with jealousy. And jealousy doesn't rear its head in the obvious ways. Look at how jealousy reared its head in, in Saul's life. He began to compare the number of souls that, that were, uh, uh, that the, the ladies who came out with the tambourines, when they said, oh, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul's heart immediately began to make comparisons. Do you know that that's one of the proof points that you are flirting with jealousy, is that you begin to compare what God has done in your life with what God has done in the others? Or you begin to compare the perception and what other people are saying. Because consider this, the reality is the women are just making up a song and he's getting angry over the lyrics, not even angry over the reality. Comparisons, but also complaints. Remember what David said, or excuse me, remember what Saul said when he heard the women singing that David has slain his 10,000s and Saul his thousands? He says, well, what more is there for him other than for him to just to take the kingdom? He's complaining. This is also a part of the the, the corrosion of our hearts when we don't arrest covetousness and jealousy early on. And when we live a life of comparisons with what God is doing in others and we're dissatisfied or disappointed with what God is doing with us in our current season. But look what happens when comparisons and complaints do not, are not arrested and stopped in their tracks. When we don't screech on the brakes with repentance, what happens? they result in contempt. Verse nine in chapter 18 tells us that that Saul eyed David from that point forward, and he looked for opportunity to kill him. Over and over again throughout chapters 18, 19, and 20, Paul, excuse me, Saul conducted all kinds of schemes to try to kill um, David or to eliminate him out of his life because he developed this heart of contempt way back in chapter 18, but that contempt came from unaddressed comparisons and unaddressed complaints. Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor Rod, ease up, buddy. I'm not going out to try to throw a spear through anybody. That's not the issue. The point is, what brought Saul to that, to that place? What brought him there was comparing, complaining, and then later contempt. Let us never take lightly the magnitude of sin and how it can grow in our lives when it goes unaddressed and not repented of. I want you to think of sin, and this might be kind of gritty, but sin is ugly, and so I feel very comfortable using this analogy. Sin works like cancer to the character. No matter where it starts, if we allow it to stay, it will eventually affect and stain everything. But not just stain it, destroy everything. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 have this to say about the nature of sin. We're all familiar. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Most of the time when we look at this text, we're thinking about the nature of temptation, but I want you to look at it a second time and understand the nature of unaddressed sin. Sin takes on this organic identity. It says that when it is conceived, then it gives birth to something, and then it continues to grow. And when it grows, it's not satisfied or finished until it produces death. That is exactly the nature of what cancer does to cells in our bodies. Sin is ugly, sin is gritty. And when we allow it to stay in our lives, it becomes a cancer to the character. And we need to be quick to address it. I wanna say to you this, when it comes to repentance, I wanna make sure that in our day and time, we get a clear understanding of what repentance is and what it means to stop the cancer of sin in from ruining our character holistically. Repentance is this, it's more than a religious apology, but it is actually an invitation of God's power to change me entirely and change me morally. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Looking at that again, if I will confess, this isn't just saying, God, I'm sorry. Repentance is not a religious apology. It is actually an invitation. It is, God, let me get honest with you and with myself. Notice how it says that if you say you haven't sinned, you make God a liar. So repentance is about getting honest with God about what's happening in my life so that he can be invited in to actually do something that I cannot do. Repentance is not a religious apology. It isn't just going before God and saying that I'm sorry, but when repentance is done right, it is an invite that says, God come into my life and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I don't want this stuff working in my character. As a result, we need to be a people who repent regularly, who repent daily, because if we're just waiting for the big ticket items or when we feel bad or when we think we owe God an apology, we are allowing sin to metastasize in the character. We're allowing little things like a little bit of uh, uh, complaining or comparison to become full-blown contempt for our fellow man. These kinds of attitudes can completely and utterly ruin our relationships if they are not addressed. There's also something else that I want us to see, and that is Jonathan. Jonathan's love and relationship for David is something special to behold. And I want to revisit it just one more time as we look at verses 1 through 4. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with him. And we've read this before, but he makes this covenant with David, right? And he takes off his own princely robe because he's the firstborn. He takes off his princely robe and puts it on him. He takes off his sword and his belt and he puts it on him. And then from this time forward, we see Jonathan playing this great role of, 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 a, of a representative of the love of Christ. He, he, he intercedes for David because David says, man, I think your dad's trying to kill me. And Jonathan says, hey, listen, my dad doesn't do anything without letting me know first. And if that's the case, I'll, 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 you know, I'll intervene. I'll be an intermediary for you. And that's exactly what he does. Saul sets out to kill David in, in one moment. And, and Jonathan helps him to hide. In another moment, it's Jonathan who who goes to his dad and says, No, David hasn't done any sin. Why should you want to do this thing? David is a just I mean, excuse me, Jonathan has this is this beautiful illustration of a person who is caught in the middle. Think about it. Sometimes you're David, where it just seems like you got challenges on every side. Sometimes you're Saul, where your primary thing you need to do is repent because you feel overwhelmed and disappointed by how by what God has allowed to happen in your life right now. And sometimes we're Jonathan where we are just simply caught in the middle. And it's really tight to navigate because being caught in the middle between, you know, two friends in middle school is completely different when you're caught in the middle between the king, who's your dad, and then this other guy named David, who you believe that God's working through and you've covenanted to him and your dad wants to kill him. That's, that, this, is, this is a wild relationship landscape that puts Jonathan in an incredibly complicated position. And I want to understand that, that the same tension that you see breaking out in Jonathan's life with this competition of loyalties, it happens in our lives all the time. All of our relationships are competing for optimal loyalty. Remember that. Every relationship that you have is competing for optimal loyalty. And so when we find ourselves stuck in the middle between two people that we wish would love each other or that we wish were on the same page with each other, it can be so tough for us. Well, Jonathan shows us a couple of things that I believe that we can greatly learn from and how to navigate this tricky landscape. Number one, Jonathan, first and foremost, represents the love of Christ in this relationship. I want you to note that the scriptures describe Jonathan's love for David as a deep love, as he would love his own self, for David. Many of the other people who celebrated David, like Saul, loved David because he could win wars. The people... Uh, loved David because he could win wars and beat giants. Saul loved David because he, could, because he could play great music that soothed his soul. So many of the people loved David or liked David for what he brought to the table. But it was Jonathan who loved David for who he was. And this is a beautiful thing. And as you, as you and I want to walk a little bit in David's shoes when we find ourselves being a representative of Christ's love, let's make sure that we keep that idea. Loving people for who they are and not just for what they do. But another thing is we need to understand that when we are loving people this way in all of our relationships, that doing the right thing can be risky. And when doing the right thing can be risky, which is you may find yourself at odds with a blood-relative relationship in order to keep a Christ-centered relationship. And this is real. This is a real relationship landscape that we need to be mindful of. Now, while Jonathan is a good intermediary with this deep compassionate love that he has for David he's not the ultimate intermediary that is the Lord Jesus Christ David uh, excuse me uh, Jonathan gives us this beautiful this beautiful illustration of the unique love that Christ has for us and here's how he does it first and foremost it is Jonathan who invites David into a covenant relationship this is exactly what Christ does to us. He invites us into a covenant relationship. Secondly, he invites David into this role this 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 relationship that includes imputation. He takes off his kingly or princely robes and he places it on David. This is imputation that is being seen in the passage when he does this. This is what Christ does. He is does, he doesn't just covenant with us, but then he gives us a new status. He makes us a part of the royal priesthood. He changes our name, he changes our identity. He makes us a member of the family. But then Jesus not only does that, but he's also an intercessor. That's exactly what Jonathan did for David. He interceded on a regular basis. But Jonathan did something else. There were times when Jonathan positioned himself before his father in such a way that his father actually threw a spear at Jonathan himself. He was willing to intercept some of the very wrath that his father had for him. Does that sound familiar? That Jonathan is actually a type or an illustration of the Christ in the fact that he invites us into this undying covenant. He is interceding for us in a variety of different moments, but he intercepts the Father's wrath on our behalf so that we can stay intact and not die under the heat of our Father's anger. I'm talking about God. Jonathan is a beautiful illustration of this great truth that we have in Christ and the way that he gives us life and helps us to navigate relationships. There's another passage of scripture I'd love to read for you. It's found here in Proverbs chapter 18. It says in verse 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than any brother. This is a distinction that looking forward in scriptures that I believe that we can see Christ typifies this in John chapter 15, verse 15, when Jesus says to his own disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. This is exactly what Jonathan did when he was talking to his father. He would go and make it known to David. Now I understand that the landscape is a little bit different, but I hope you can see these glimmers of how Jonathan operates in his covenantal love. Now I'm using this word covenant, and I know this is something that might be slightly unfamiliar with us today, because I don't know how often we talk about covenant. What, because what could possibly drive Jonathan to have this level of love for David over against his own father? what could it? It's covenantal love. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, covenants were a lot different from the way that we treat them today. Today, you might have a covenant with your homeowner's association, like you'll pay your dues and they'll let you use the pool. But the moment that you decide you don't want to use the pool, you stop paying your dues. Covenants in our day are very conditional, even our most ultimate covenants. You know, you sign an agreement to work at a company for a certain number of years and you say, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm out of here. I'm just going to take what I can get. We sign up for covenants in our marriages. And oftentimes we're like, man, you know what? The the conditions have changed. I, I don't know if I want to stay here. I don't know if I want to continue to do this. So we have a very light and limited perspective on covenants that is different from our predecessors in the faith in the ancient Near East. What we see from them is that covenant was a serious deal. It was a matter of life and death. It was both spiritual because it was before the Lord. It was relational because we would agree to love and commit to this person the way we would own ourselves. And we would swear, and and, and many of the covenant holders would swear that if something bad happened to another person that they would wish that worse would happen to themselves. But it's also physical. It wasn't just a contract, it wasn't just a document. There's often a practical gesture of covenant in the ancient Near Eastern communities. And so the language of covenant, the commitment that Jonathan had to David was something that is far and away different from what we experience today. But aren't you glad that Jesus and his covenant with us and those who place faith in him is not fickle like the covenants we have today? Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ isn't trying to pull out of a covenant with us because we change, the conditions change, the temperature is too hot? Aren't you glad that the Lord Jesus Christ is an all season savior that no matter what season we're in in life, that he sticks with us, he continues to save us? Aren't you glad that Jesus loves us even superior with what even greater love than what Jonathan had for David and whether or not we're the one who needs to remember the one who needs to repent or we're the ones who's trying to represent and navigate in different relationships that Jesus is right there with us you see when we're trying to to to, to represent the interests of Christ and all these competing loyalties uh, there there's something that I believe that we need to steer clear of and that is allowing alternative identities other than our identity in Christ to shape our loyalty. And so we need to ground our relationships in the same kind of love that Christ had for us and become people that are consistent. Um, In addition to that, I want us to see this when it comes to this unique role that Jonathan plays. You know, Jonathan is a good mediator, but Christ is the greatest. Why is Christ the greatest mediator? You see, Christ is fully man, which means he fully understands what it means to be tempted in all points as we are, but yet without sin. He's also fully God, which means he understands exactly the wrath of the Father against sin. He's fully vested. He's equally equally holding to the glory of the Father as he is to the salvation of God's people. And he's fully capable. As Jesus positions himself as the great mediator between us and man, the scriptures say it this way: between God and us, uh, the scriptures put it this way in 1 Timothy chapter two, verses three through six. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, and, uh, God our Savior, who dwells, oh, excuse me, who desires that all people be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, that the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all in which which is the testimony given at the proper time. Remember, Jonathan couldn't necessarily give his life on David's behalf, but he definitely stood up for David in many ways. But the Lord Jesus Christ did give his life for us. He stood directly in harm's way and he took on the wrath of the father that belonged uniquely to us. He is the ultimate mediator. There'll be times in life when we are called to also act as a mediator. But I want us to remember that when we mediate, that that, that there's no such thing as a neutral or an unbiased mediator, but there is such thing as a mediator that is fully vested. Can you fully sympathize with those who you're trying to mediate between? But not just can you fully sympathize, but can you fully see that one, you can't be a savior, but can you fully represent the heart and the interests of Christ? We are living in a time right now Where again, there are so many competing priorities, so many desires, uh, so, so many different places that are calling upon our loyalties. And we need to ground and center our affections and our loyalties in a single place so that when the Lord returns that we are not found to be unfaithful because we have been serving all these alternative identities and alternative ideas. It's a tough spot to be in, but Christ has been the first one to be in that space as our great mediator. Um, I hope you hear me loud and clear today when I say that regardless of the, um, how we feel in a given season, we have a God who is sufficient for every season. A God who can remind us to repent, a God who can call us to remember, and a God who can, can call us to represent him in tough relationship spaces like where Jonathan found himself. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now thanking you and praising you for your great grace and mercy, um, your loving kindness As we see it borne out in subtle reflections in the life of Jonathan, Lord God, we thank you for the ultimate reflection of this kind of intermediary love that we see in Christ. We beg now that you would um, help us to appreciate the great work completed in Christ and that as we navigate complicated relationship landscapes, that we would uh, look to Jesus to give us wisdom. And we would look to your scriptures as well, Lord God, to give us um, knowledge on... um, Lord God, on just how to work through all these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.